0: Welcome, folks. Really good to be with you. If you're you're visiting with us, and especially warm welcome to you. I've said hi to most of the folks downstairs, but hi, guys, in the balcony. Really great to be there. uh, I hope it's great to be there. Uh, It's really great to be... Hey, cry room people through in the back there. I can see someone in the back. Okay. um, According to the pattern, just just done a plug for it. Let me just add a plug. See the things we teach in According to the Pattern. That five-week course... I'm still living in the good of that course. I I so believe in the principles we teach in that course. It is a life-changing foundational course. If you've never been on it, you've got to get on it. Even if you're thinking, I'm not sure if this is the church I want to become a member of, then what a better idea to go on a course like that, get some great Bible teaching, and then at least with your eyes wide open, you can make a decision. Okay, I know exactly what this church is building on, and then you can commit to either being a member or not. I think you'll become a member because it's just an amazing course. But it's, it's just an eye-opening, life-changing, foundational teaching course. So don't don't miss it. If you've missed any of the previous sessions and previous courses, don't miss them this time. Okay, let's pray then. We're going to turn to the Bible. Father, thank you so much for your love for every person from the youngest to the oldest in this auditorium today. Thank you, God, for the plans you have for them. And God, thank you for the plans you have for planet Earth, $7 billion precious human beings. You know every single one of them, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, to the least famous to the most famous. You know them. You created us, and you have a plan. And I pray today you'd help me unpack that plan with your help, Holy Spirit, for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I remember... Growing up in a church, when I was, you know, since birth, taken along every Sunday, and it wasn't a dynamic environment. In fact, year after year, the church got smaller. It was doing nothing to engage the community, and it was a pretty bleak picture. I became a Christian when I was 15, and I I started to love God with all my heart, and I started having a passion for the church, but I didn't see much happening in church, And Christians I was meeting in Scotland had a pretty bleak outlook of what the church should look like and could be. But then I turned to the Bible, and roughly when I was 19, 20 years old, things just jumped off the pages in the Bible and gripped my soul so strongly, painted a vision on the canvas of my heart that I've never been able to shake that vision It's been the fuel and the fire that's kept me going through the tough times of planting this church. Because the hard times have been here, but what's kept me going is that vision, a biblical vision of what God wants to do on planet earth. And I just think he's going to do it. I believe it with all my heart. I believe he's going to do it. So what I'm going to do is I want to paint for you the picture that was painted for me. I just want to take it from the very chapters in Genesis and then trace it through the Bible and just hopefully God will... Paint in your souls the picture of what God wants to do on planet Earth. I'm aware you might be here today and you don't even know God or you've never committed yourself to God. I just want to say for you, just from the start, God has a plan for you. He has never been anywhere other than with you and He wants to be in your life. Would you open your heart to Him today as we just take this time to share? So we're going to start at the start of the Bible and then we're going to flip quickly to the end of the Bible Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in His own image. Last week, we looked at the significance that we've been created in the image of God. Therefore, we have value and worth. Nothing to do with what we do. Everything to do with who we are. And therefore, we value the unborn. We value the aged. We value the poorest of the poor right through to the richest of the rich. If you missed that message, go on the website, download it. It will be available shortly. We've been created in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them. By the way, just notice that. Male and female created them. There's equality in the sexes. It's not like males are made in the image of God. And I know chapter 2 says He took the rib from Adam. So this talks about headship. I understand there's difference, but there is equality and difference. So here we have equality. We've been created equally in the image of God, men and women. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Say subdue. The word subdue could also be translated rule over. In fact, that same word rule over is used earlier in the chapter. Rule over or have dominion. So he's put us on planet earth as distinct from the animals where the pinnacle of God's creation, created in his image, and he's put us here to fill the earth and to subdue the earth. Not in a negative, got you under my thumb kind of subduing, but in a way that a good king would subdue his kingdom, bring dominion and order and rule. We're here to fill the earth and bring his rule. Going right to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Say, great multitudes. Great multitudes. That no one could count from every nation tribe people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb they were wearing white robes these are people that no one could count as numerous as the sand on the seashore as numerous as the stars in the sky and it's filling the earth this people and we're ruling under god this people and the bible says in revelation there'll be a new heaven and a new earth the domain of man and we will rule and fill just like we were created at the very beginning to rule and fill. Now, the reality is, we've done a pretty good job at filling the earth, but we've done a pretty lousy job at ruling on this earth. And that is because of Genesis chapter 3, which describes the fall of mankind and how sin came into the world. We'll look at that in a few weeks' time. But the challenge we've got is this. here's God's commission in general to mankind's. Mankind's, you're created in my image, fill the earth, and rule. Okay, let's go back into the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 now. And this is where God is a bit more specific about some of the details. He places the first man, Adam, in a garden. It says in verse 10, "'And a river watered the garden that flowed from Eden.'" For the, there, from there it's separated into four headwaters. There was a river in Eden that separated into four headwaters, and it goes on in those verses to mention the Tigris and the Euphrates and different rivers that went out. It's interesting, the symbolism that's here, I think, is deliberate from God. Throughout the Bible, river speaks of life. It speaks of, you know, you see cities de- developing around rivers. You see, we get nourishment from rivers. We see, we get transportation from rivers. It is accommodating life. Irrigation makes it happen. In the Bible also, in the New Testament, rivers refer to salvation. It refers to a life of God. And I think there was a physical river in Eden that divided into four headwaters. But I think there's also a picture here that God wanted life to flow. And notice it's four headwaters four headwaters, I think, is very pictorial as well, and it speaks of the earth. In Revelation chapter 7, it speaks of the four corners of the earth. It speaks of the four winds of earth. So number four, just like number seven is the number of perfection, yeah, number three is trinity. We also see here number four speaks of earth. Numbers are significant in the Bible. So what the purpose of God is, I believe, at the very beginning was that the life of God that was seen in the garden was to be cultivated by the man he had placed in the garden, and that God's intention was that literally planet Earth would become a garden of Eden, that the whole of the garden, the life of the garden, would spread to the four corners of the earth, and the whole planet would be filled and ruled over and will be thriving, and that's the picture I think God has given us from the beginning. Here's a couple of commentators' their comments on those early chapters in Genesis. Ellison says, "The obvious inference that Adam was to, was so to carry out the work in the garden that he and his family would eventually extend it until it embraced the whole earth." Here's another commentator, Meredith Cliny in his book Kingdom Prologue. He says, "God sent them, that's man and woman, into a world on their mission." as his anointed servants, with a royal mandate to exercise dominion over the earth in his name. They were to fill the earth with their royal kinds, and they were to bring the earth under their rule. Though human, through human procreation and by various, their various labors, their royal rule, uh, they would produce a royal human race, a universal ruling community on planet earth. God's intention, God's purpose from the very beginning was this, that people reflecting His image in relationship with Him would fill this earth and rule. That's God's purpose. And as I say, we've done well at filling the earth. That was the fun bit. But we haven't done very well at bringing His kingdom And his rule to bear on the planet. And I'm just going to give you the heads up, I think that's everything to do with Jesus and the church. So let's go on a journey that I went on when I was in my late teens, early 20s, that so gripped my soul. This picture that God had a purpose at the very beginning that human beings reflecting his image in relationship with him would fill the earth and subdue and rule. So God, that was his intention. But mankind sins. We rebelled against God, but God didn't lose his intention. So shortly after that, generations had passed, he found a man, Abraham. Abraham, he calls to follow him. And he speaks to Abraham. This is Abraham's blessing and commissioning. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Say that last bit with me. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was God's plan and purpose. Again, his agenda has never changed since the very beginning. His plan has been for a people reflecting his glory, reflecting his image, in relationship with him, would fill this earth and bring rule. And now he finds a man, Abraham, and he calls him to go on a journey, and he's meaning that, Abraham, through your offspring, I'm going to means bless the entire planet. There's going to be blessing coming through your family. And what did he mean by that? Well, I think he meant Israel. That's Abraham's offspring. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had kids they became the heads of the tribes of Israel. So, I think he meant Israel. But I also think he meant Jesus, through Jesus, Abraham's offspring, born a Jew in the family line of Abraham. But I also think even more exciting is that we're involved with this as well, that through Jesus, I think he's talking about all the people who walk in the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 29, did you know you're a a child of Abraham? Did you know you're an offspring of Abraham? It says in Galatians three twenty nine, if you belong to Christ, anyone here belong to Christ? Oh, so good. Anyone belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. You belong to Christ; you are heirs according to the promise. What promise? You're an heir of the world. You're going to be blessed. So that through you, all the nations of the earth can be a blessing. Your purpose in life is not to be a curse to those around you. Your purpose in life is to be a blessing wherever you go. In your communities, with your families, with your friends. When people encounter you, wow, I hang out with them, I get blessed. You're called to walk in the footsteps of of Abraham, who believed God, your believers, where his children, by faith, and as a result, you've got this calling. We could look at Jacob, but for time's sakes, we won't. Jacob also had this vision of the house of God. But let's skip ahead a little bit further to, to David's, and to God's purpose, God's purpose in Israel. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. They became the heads of the tribes of Israel. And you know the story. Joseph was sold into slavery. He ends up becoming prime minister. There's a famine in the lands. The offspring go into Egypt to get foods. They realize Joseph's there. He's the prime minister now. And the whole of the families of Israel move to Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. Initially, it's fine. But then they end up being enslaved by the Egyptians. God raises up Moses. Moses performs incredible miracles by the hand of God, and the people are set free from slavery in Egypt. They're taken across, through the Red Sea, through a wilderness, heading for a promised land, the same land that God had promised Abraham generations beforehand. They're about to go into the promised land. That journey from Egypt to the promised land shouldn't have taken that long, and it wouldn't have taken that long, but the Israelites got to the edge of the promised lands, And they send in spies to check out the land. Two of the spies came back. Remember that song? Two were, I can't even remember. Anyway, forget that song. So the two of the spies were bad. And two of the spies were good. And they came back and said, the land's fantastic. Let's go and take the land. This is God's promised land for it. And sure, there's going to be battles to fight. There's going to be giants to conquer. But we can do it. God is with us. But 10 of them came back and say, Man, it's a beautiful land. It surely is. Wow, and it'd be great to live there. But you know what? Those battles, are going to be too hard battles to fight. Those giants are too great. We seem like grasshoppers in their eyes. So they were intimidated and they discouraged the Israelite people. And this probably a million people in the wilderness, led by Moses, decided, you know what? I don't think we want to go into that promised land. They didn't have faith in God. God was seriously hacked off he was about to teach them a few lessons. And Moses interceded on their behalf. God was literally going to wipe out the people. And Moses interceded on behalf of the people and said, God, have mercy on them for your name's sake. And then God says this thing. It's interesting. He says, Numbers Numbers 14, verse 20 to 21. So, the Lord said, I've pardoned them according to your words, But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Why would God say that? You know, he might say, but as I live, they'll get into that land. He didn't say that though, did he? He said, but as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Why that? as I live. Listen to the strength with which God speaks. As I live, the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. He's saying it because his agenda and plan wasn't just to get them into a nice little homeland in the Middle East and live comfortable lives. His plan was, I'm going to get you in the lands. I'm going to so bless you in that lands. You're going to be like light in the darkness. You're going to be like salt on the earth, people are going to look on and say, wow, is that what it's like to live with God? Is that what it's like to live under God's covenant and blessing? I want God in my life. And that that people would be so attractive, a nation among the nations, that the whole earth would turn to God. And God's agenda was clearly that. It wasn't just getting them in a land. That was just a means to an end. The end was that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. In fact, it's exactly the same end that he said at the beginning. Adam, I want you to fill the earth and bring rule. I want you created in my image, reflecting my glory in relationship with me, to fill this earth with your kinds. Abraham, he finds Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And now God wants them to get into the land, not for the sake of them and the lands, but for the sake of his great purpose to fill the entire earth. So Israel eventually goes into the lands, and they have a king. Second king they ever have is a man called David, a man after God's own heart. And after he's established as king, he figures, I want to build God a temple in Jerusalem, that it would be a place, a focal point of worship on planet earth. The prophet Nathan came to him and said, listen, that's not for you to do, but your offspring your son born to you will build the temple. And this is the prophecy that comes in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 14. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body? I will establish his kingdom. He will be the one to build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long for? Forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, David had a son, Solomon. And Solomon reigns after David died. He became the king. And Solomon indeed did build a temple in Jerusalem. That wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. Solomon's temple was constructed around about 953 B.C. It lasted for 367 years and then it was destroyed by the Babylonian armies. Seventy years after that, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple. If you read your Bibles, that's the time of Nehemiah and Ezra and some of those cool guys. They rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. That lasted for generations and finally was reconstructed by Herod in 19 B.C. with about 10,000 workers skilled workers building that temple. And apparently, the Herod's temple in Jerusalem, the one that Jesus himself saw and the disciples saw, was a sight to behold. It was an incredible spectacle. It was made meticulously. The stones it was made from were some 30 foot long, these stones. So huge. They were so perfectly built that it was said that you couldn't even put a knife between these huge stones. It was so incredibly precision cut, you couldn't even get a knife between the stones. And one day, Jesus, as he's walking... Through the Jerusalem area, his disciples turned to him, Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, and verse 34. And he says, Jesus left the temple and was walking when his disciples came to him and called to his attention the buildings. Jesus replies, Do you see these things? He asks, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another, everyone will be thrown down. Verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. He prophesied. Shortly after this, Jesus was crucified and resurrected, ascended back to the Father. But 40 years after saying that, in AD 70, Titus and his Roman legions descended upon Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, killing about 1.1 million Jews at the time, taking 90,000 Jews prisoner, and they totally obliterated the temple. Every stone that was there was thrown down. Today, even if, if you go into the Uh, Jerusalem area, the valley below Jerusalem, has still got these huge stones set into the valley from that temple period. And never again has that temple existed in Jerusalem. It's never been there ever since. So, God promised that David would build a house for his name. Sorry, David's son would. And David's son Solomon did. But David's son Solomon didn't have an everlasting kingdom. The purpose of God was fulfilled in Jesus Christ— It's Jesus Christ, the son, the offspring, Jesus born in the royal line of David's. It's Jesus Christ that would build a house for God. And it would not be a temple built by hands, rather it would be a people. You see, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. In the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. God dwells among us. It's not that buildings are important, they just keep the rain off. It's that we're important, the people of God's. God dwells among His people, and it's through this people that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It's through His people that we will fill the earth and bring His rule and His dominion. Micah predicted it, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And it will come about in the last days. Say last days. Now, the the last days, well, that's the era in which we're living. Days will end when Jesus returns. The era we're living in, Micah's predicting about these days, it will come about in the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Now, the Jerusalem temple was ransacked, but the bigger agenda of God, the Jewish mind would have heard Micah prophesy and would have thought, Jerusalem and its temple will become a spectacle in the last days. But with an understanding in the New Testament, we understand that the house of God, we are the household of God, according to Ephesians. God dwells among us by His Spirit. God's agenda was always bigger than just a land in the Middle East. His agenda is all even though it's a special land, even though there are special people, His agenda has always been the ends of the earth. The temple, Israel, was always a means to a great ends of glorifying God among the nations that all peoples would come to know Him. So this house of God is talking about the church. And when it's talking about the nations, the mountains, it's talking about nations, the nation of God's people, like a nation among the nations, like a city within the city, a community among the community, a people. We are a people, a people of God, called to spread His goodness in this earth. And then there was a moment, book of Daniel, famous king called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king over Babylon, which at the time was the world-leading power on earth. It dominated the known worlds. Nations were subdued by Babylon, and they were a heathen, pagan, idol-worshipping people. Daniel was one of the Jewish people stolen away into exile in Babylon. But Daniel, despite the idolatry around him and and the temptations around him, walked with God in that environment. In fact, Daniel outlived five kings. He brought two of those heathen kings to faith in the true God. And he made the worship of the true God law in a land where he was a foreigner and a slave. Daniel was a huge influence. I love the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, there's a moment where Nebuchadnezzar, this king, this secular king, has a dream. Wakes up in the morning after seeing this dream, and he knows, man, that dream is so significant. I need to know what the dream means so he calls in all his, the Chaldeans and the sorcerers and the magicians, all his wise gurus. He brings them before him and says, okay, I need to know what that dream's about. I've just had a dream. And they said, okay, king, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. Now, you know what they were doing. They just know enough jargony stuff that he would have told them this dream and they would have fabricated something that sounded kind of plausible. And they would have, and they would have kind of put it in thou and thee and they made it all sound religiously And he would have said, okay, and they would have kept their jobs. But the king didn't want to risk anything on these people. He didn't want to risk a a possible outcome of that dream. He wanted to know that that dream I had last night, I know it was significant. I cannot risk not understanding it. So he said to the wise men and the Chaldeans, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to tell me first, tell me the dream, and then tell me the interpretation so I know that you have the qualifications to tell me the dream. Now, this freaked them out. They said, no one can do this and he says, well, you're going to have to, or I'll kill you all. This guy, he was a great motivator of his staff. So, they (laughs) they were going to die. It happened that Daniel happened to be one of the wise men, probably the only wise men among the wise men. And that same night, God gave the same dream to Daniel— and he comes before the king's presence and he says to the king of babylon king of babylon most famous person on planet earth walks into this grand palace stands before the king and says king daniel chapter 2 verse 28 there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to king nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the in the in the latter days that's the era that we're living in, right? So Daniel says this dream that God has shown you, King, is about what will take place in the latter days. And then he goes on in front of the king and describes to the king the vision, the dreams that he had in his head. So the king's sitting in the seat, and he says, "Okay, King, you saw a statue." Now the king's on the edge of his seat because he had seen a statue. And he said, you, "You were seeing in your dream, you saw this huge statue." and the statue had four parts to it. The head was of gold, the, and then he broke down the four parts of the body, and they said there were four different materials. There was gold, there was silver, there was bronze, there was silver, and, and sorry, and there was, and was uh, clay and iron. And he said that the, the four parts, there are four different parts of the statue, four different materials. <clears throat> this is what you saw. And the king said, that's exactly what I saw. And then he said, as you were watching, and it says in verse." 34 to 35, you continued looking until a stone that was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff on the summer's threshing floor. And the winds (laughs) carried them away so there was no trace to be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Say that with me. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Say it again. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And they said to the king, That's what you dreamt, wasn't it? And the king said, Yeah. And man, this was a, a divine moment all of a sudden, the king was facing reality. Among the pseudo-religious stuff he'd experienced, now was the real deal. And he said, Daniel said, King, this is exactly what the dream means. And he told him the interpretation. And the interpretation is this, King, you're the head of gold, and the Babylonian empire is the first of four kingdoms. And he said, there will be three kingdoms after you. And if you get your history books out, you'll see, Daniel, you were absolutely right. You look at history— there was the Babylonian Empire. They were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Then they were overthrown by Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, yeah? And then they were overthrown by the Roman Empire, four empires. And Daniel said, that's exactly what's going to happen in the generations that follow you. And history proves him right. And he says, and at the time of those kings, you saw a stone, a little stone, cut out of the mountain without, without human hands. And it struck the statue on the feet of iron, so this stone had its impact in the time of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. And that stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When? When would that happen? King, remember what he said? God has shown you what will take place in the latter days. In the latter days, the stone that struck the statue, that movement that began 2,000 years ago is going to become a great mountain that will fill the whole earth, latter days, before the return of Jesus. Prior to the return of Jesus Christ, the greatest thing on planet earth is going to be the movement that Jesus burst. So, 2,000 years ago, in a little back of beyond place, an angel speaks to a teenage girl who was not significant other than she was born in the royal family of David, but she didn't look impressive. Teenage girl, betrothed to be married, and he said, you're going to have a child. And she gives birth to a child. The father, the adopted father, because he wasn't involved with the birth process, was Joseph, a working-class man. And Jesus grew up 2,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago, in obscurity. He was born and laid in an animal's feeding trough, in a manger, in a stable, because there was no room in any proper birthing place shepherds came to see him at his birth, and foreigners came to see him at his birth, which became the theme of his life. Not those you'd expect. He never traveled more than 200 miles away from home, never received a formal education, never ran a business, never was a husband, never had the joy of being a father, never wrote any books, never wrote any songs, never wrote any articles, never wrote any poems. And yet more songs, poems, books, paintings, have been painted and written about him than any other person who's ever lived. Age 30, he starts ministering, and in only three years of ministry, three years. And yet this man, in three years of ministry, has had a greater effect on planet Earth than anyone has, even given their entire lifespan. Three years transformed the world. His words have become the foundation of our legal system, our education system. The vast majority of the aid organizations transforming our society— Right in there, when there's intense suffering among humanity, have been inspired by the words of Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, he hangs on a cross, crucified by those who he created. The Bible claims he's none other than God in the flesh, and he died on the cross to save you from your sins. And he rose again the third day, and he's alive right now. And he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the ruler. When Jesus walked the earth, he was the first man since Adam who had authority. Since Adam's sins, he lost his authority. He handed over the keys of his tenancy of planet earth to Satan. But when Jesus died and rose again, he reclaims the keys so that we can reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. There's only two types of people on planet earth. You're either in Adam, or you're in Christ. There's no third type of person. In Christ, you're righteous. You rule. You've been restored, and you have eternal life, and you know God. In Adam, you're already dead, even though you think you're alive. You're already lost, even though you think you're living it up, because you don't know God. And Jesus is, Jesus is the man. That stone that struck the statue, it represents a man and it represents a movement. Jesus is the man and the church and the kingdom is the movement. It's interesting. The movement that Jesus began has changed planet Earth. If you were a, a gambler 2,000 years ago, and you were to wager a bet between the Roman Empire and its Caesars and its architecture and its infrastructures, you know, the Roman Empire or this kind of guy who wore flip-flops had a bunch of kind of dubious characters hanging out with him. If you were to place your bets on which one, two millennia from then would still be going and still be transforming the world. I don't know what you'd have betted on, but Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're calling our dogs Nero and Caesar. And we're calling our kids Peter, Paul, and Mary. Jesus and his movement has transformed planet Earth. No competition. He's the Lord. What was his message? His message was the kingdom. Age 30, he started to preach. It's interesting Age 30 when he started to preach just after his baptism just after his temptation in the wilderness he stands up in matthew 4 verse 17 and he says from that time on jesus began to preach repent that means turn away from your way start going god's way repent for the kingdom of heaven is near so just just make this really clear if you're not going god's way today i say to you in love i say to you repent turn around you're heading for a collision course, a lost eternity. Turn around, turn back to God. Repent. Turn back to God. And Jesus' message is, repent for the kingdom of God is near. What did he mean the kingdom of God was near? Well, the king had just turned up. That's what he meant. The king was here. His rule was imminent. You see, remember the beginning? God said, Adam, fill the earth. And subdue, rule, exercise authority. Adam blew it. But here now, Jesus, the King of kings, one who is fully God and fully man, he's on the throne, ruling and reigning today. The King. And he has a kingdom, he has a dominion. The kingdom of God is wherever his dominion extends. You could say his kingdom is over everything his kingdom is over the animals and the plants and the trees. His kingdom is over Richard Dawkins. It is over it. And yet you are not part of the kingdom unless in your heart you submit to that rule. So as you individually before God have come to the point and said, be my king. Now you are part of the kingdom. His kingdom has come near and it is advancing in planet earth. And it is that stone that struck the statue that was cut out of the mountain without human hands. No, It was a virgin birth it was a resurrection. This was not man's doing. This was God's doing. This man, Jesus Christ, started a movement, this kingdom that is destined to fill this earth and to subdue. It's also a kingdom, yes. And it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7, "'For to us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government or the kingdom will rest on his shoulders.'" This is Isaiah prophesying that Jesus would come. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. In other words, Jesus is God, Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. There will be no end to the increase. If there's no end to the increase, what was that ancient horror movie? Was it The Blob or something? It was. A, it was a, kind of like a. Anyone remember that ancient black and white horror? Ed Wood. What's it called? it was the blob, was it? And that this thing just kept increasing, didn't it? Is that right? It kept increasing. And was it like threatening the earth? Man, such a scary movie. This, this black and white movie, incredible special effects, uh, this blob was going to increase. And if it just kept increasing, it was destined to take over the whole earth. Ah, leave you in that cliffhanger. It didn't, but you got to watch the film to find out how it didn't. I can't remember. But if something keeps increasing, it's destined to what? What? Well, if something keeps increasing, it's destined to do what? Fill the earth, right? So, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no ends. Jesus Christ's government, the rule that He is extending, is destined to perpetually increase for all eternity, and therefore will fill the whole earth give me an amen if you believe it and say it like an african church yo so the kingdom that's the stone also the stone represents the church the stone that struck the stash is going to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth the church jesus said in matthew 16 verse 18 i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overpower it I'll build my church it's the Greek word ekklesia, Ecclesia. ek and kleo. It comes from two words, ek and kleo. Ek is out, kleo is to call. Ekklesia translates to call out. We're the called out ones. We've been called out. You're just going about your own business, ignoring God, and then God called you out. Were the called out ones? Were this thing called the church, this ecclesia? It's interesting. Before it was, that terminology was ever used by Jesus, ecclesia, it was used in the secular world. The ecclesia existed, for example, in Athens. It was a group of citizens who had prominent role in the city. Their role was they could decide what happened in that city. They decided who could trade in that city. They decided how the budget would be spent in that city. They decided whether to go to war and to mobilize military power or not. This is the, the weight and the authority that the Ecclesia in Athens had. Jesus uses the same word to describe his called out ones. Notice the authority. We get to see what goes in our cities through prayer and through authority in Jesus' name. We get to rule on earth through Jesus Christ, not as dictators, by his loving servants in his name and by the power of his Holy Spirit. The Ecclesia, the church, Jesus said he's going to build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Ephesians chapter one, verse 22 says, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See the same purpose of God. See, God's never thought, all right, plan A didn't work, let's try plan B. He's never done that. He's always stuck with plan A, fill the earth and subdue it. A people reflecting my image, reflecting my glory in relationship with me, filling this earth and bringing rule. It's exactly the same agenda. It has just continued down through the generations, and God has always planned it to happen through a people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, from all different age groups, backgrounds, and social classes, coming under the authority of this king, King Jesus, and that through him we'll fill the earth and subdue it. Bill Hybels, speaking of the local church, he said, The local church is the hope of the world, and I believe it with all my heart. There is nothing that will change Edinburgh more, this world more, than gospel preaching, spirit-filled, disciple-making, poor, loving, God-glorifying local churches. Nothing. It is the hope of our city. The most important thing in Edinburgh today is not Alex Salmond and the Scottish Parliament. The most important thing on planet Earth today, in Edinburgh today, is not the financial institutions. The most important thing in Edinburgh today is the churches where people of God gather before God, knowing Him. They're the called out ones, they're the apple of His eye, and we're here to be salt and light in the darkness of our precious city that we love we had to see the city filled with the glory of God. we had to see the city filled with people knowing God. My job's not done when I've got a big church. Our job is done when we've influenced every corner of our society. Nothing less. So we were, we're going to be busy. So how are we going to change the world? Jesus said, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Sounds kind of like, Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's meant to. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the Trinity, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You think, Jesus, why didn't you just stay on earth and do it yourself? But God's agenda has always been that a people reflecting His glory, and now we're a redeemed people reflecting His glory in relationship with Him, would fill this earth and bring His authority and rule and he said he will be with us. In fact, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth has commissioned us. Really, how could you fail? He's all authority on earth. So I understand your workplace might say to you, you can't talk about God in this place. Or your school might say, you can't talk about Jesus in this school. Or the government of Iran might say, you can't speak about that gospel in my country with all due respect, head teacher and boss and government of Iran, there's one with all authority over earth, and he's commissioned me into his earth to make disciples. So with respect, I have to. I've got, there's no no no-go areas. There's no street you can't preach on. No door you can't knock. No person you can't share your faith with. He has all authority on earth, and he's all authority in the heavens. The satanic realm where Satan and demons operate, trying to thwart the advancement of the church, he is full authority in that realm. And therefore, you can take ground in Jesus' name. And we're here to make disciples. And he's done a pretty good job through us. He's with us. He's given us authority. He's in us by his Holy Spirit. And he's doing the work. 100 AD, the church... Had, there was one person on planet Earth for 306... One person who was a believer in Jesus on Earth for 360 people in the population, 100 A.D. According to the Time magazine, the world population at that time when Jesus was on Earth was about 140 million people. And one out of every 360 of them by 100 A.D. were followers of Jesus. By 1,000 A.D., one out of every 270 people on Earth were followers of Jesus. By 1500 AD, one out of every 85 people on earth were followers of Jesus. By 1900 AD, one out of every 21 people on earth were followers of Jesus. By 1970, one in every 13 people on earth were followers of Jesus. And by the year 2000s, and probably r- roughly the same just now, one in every nine people on earth are followers of Jesus. Now I understand that one in three people would call themselves Christian. But you and I know there's a difference between calling yourself Christian because you were christened or grew up in a Christian country and between someone who authentically follows Jesus. But I'm just saying that statistically one in nine people on earth today are authentic followers of Jesus Christ. The stone that struck the statue has become a great mountain and it's filling this earth. And by God's help and with his anointing, it will continue and increase. You know that Every day, 100,000 people become followers of Jesus. Every week, 4,500 churches are established. Those statistics are from David Barrett and Todd Johnson. The number of Christian congregations has increased from 1.4 million to 3.5 million in the last 30 years on earth. That's statistics from Christianity Today. It's a story of a guy and he's walking along a seashore, his sun is setting, and he sees in the distance a little boy, and the little boy keeps running over, picking up something, and then running back and throwing it. And as he gets closer, he sees the little boy is running along, picking up starfish, and throwing the starfish back into the sea, because the tide swept in a ton of starfish. And the, the, the man said cynically, son, you're really not going to make any difference. Do you not realize that there's thousands of starfish being swept up on this beach? And there's probably beaches all along this coastline that exactly the same things happen to. What difference are you going to make? The little boy went and picked up a starfish, and he smiled cheekily and said, I'm going to make a difference to this one. And he threw it back in, and he kept doing what he was doing. So the truth is, you've got to think global, but act local. You've got to think big, but act small. Jesus said, go and make disciples. God thinking big came as a baby. God thinking big like a stone in the face of a statue. God thinking big for three years gathered 12 slightly devious characters. God thought big and acted small himself, and yet he's changed the world. So just one life at a time, folks, one life at a time, consider yourself commissions you influence people i'll never influence there are people around you that you have a voice to that god is calling you to use that voice don't live in a christian subculture be in church love church but also have friends who don't know god learn to relate to them because that's what jesus did share with them the good news about jesus that's not popular to share that message so be careful how you do it. Don't jump in two big boots. They'll just say, ah, stuff you. Love them first. Pray for them. But then there has to come a moment where you tell them. Because that message of God's love in Christ is what will transform lives, just like it transformed your life. Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations. We, we said to our leaders this week in our leaders' meeting, this is why we exist as a church. We exist because our generation needs God-glorifying, disciple-making local churches. That's why we exist. You want to know, well, why does Destiny Church exist? That's why. We exist because our generation needs God-glorifying, disciple-making local churches. We're here because of the agenda that God put the first human being on planet Earth for. Fill the Earth and subdue it. Go make disciples of all nations. That's why we exist. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you created us in your image. Thank you, God, that you gave humankind a mandate. And God, that mandate has never changed. That agenda has never let up your agenda has never been anything less than the whole planet. And for us, that means our whole city, our whole region. It means Mid-Lothian, East Lothian, West Lothian, Fife, the borders. It means this area of the city, Leith, the 60, 70,000 people living in Leith, each and every single one of them. It means as a church, the gory area and its surroundings. And it means, God, that one day we're going to, with your help, start other campuses in other parts of the city because some churches are closing down and there's gaps being left. It means that we're going to plant churches around the world as you give us the right leaders. That's what it means. And it means that, God, it means that mums at the school playground are going to be praying for the other mums at the school playground. It means that that people working in secular workplaces are going to do everything they can to be great employees and set a fantastic example and shine like light in darkness. And when they have opportunity, they're going to share about Jesus. God, thank you for this great and high calling. And Jesus, thank you for modeling it, it to us so well by raising those 12 disciples and changing the world by acting small. We glorify your amazing name, Lord Jesus Christ. We consider you to be our king. We consider you to be the one who rules the universe today. And we gladly submit to your authority. Be king over our lives. Thank you. God, thank you for gripping my heart when I was in my late teens with these truths. My prayer is, God, would you grip the heart of every single man woman, a child in this auditorium today with these same truths. Okay, respond to God just where you are. Just wherever you are, just wherever situation you find yourself in, just respond to God. If something's in particular spoken to you today, use this opportunity right now to pray back your response to him. He says, go and make disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus today, in this moment, I I just encourage you, say yes to that calling. Just in your heart, just say, okay, Lord, give me strength, but I will do that. I will go and make disciples. Commit to that commission. Maybe some of you here today, you don't yet know God. Let me encourage you right now. Why not give your whole life to God? Why not trust in Jesus who died and rose again to save you? This is your moment. If that's you today, you're saying, Peter, I don't know God, but I want to know him. I don't want to live another day without having God in my life. Then this is your moment. And it's an important moment. It's a moment where, in order to have God in your life, you've got to take a step. It's a step of trusting that what Jesus did in that cross saves you. And secondly, it's a step where you, in your heart, you bow the knee and let Jesus be the king of your life. That means the king of your sex life, the king of your finances. The king over your private life and your public life. The king over your career. It means there's no no go areas. Jesus is king. So if that's you today, I would love the privilege of helping introduce you to God just now. If you're saying, Peter, I want God in my life, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now under your breath. Say, Dear Lord God, thank you for your amazing love for me. Jesus, thanks for dying on the cross rising again to save me. I believe in you. Today I trust you to be my Savior. I realize I'm a sinner and I today turn away from my sin and I trust in you to be my Savior. And I also bow my knee and I acknowledge that you're the King. Lord's take first place in my life, I give my life to you. Thanks for hearing my prayer and accepting me today. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to pray for you just wherever you are. Can you just indicate that you prayed that prayer by simply raising your hand? I want to take a moment to pray for you. If that's you today, you prayed that prayer, just raise your hand just now where you are. Thank you.